Let's, um, let's go ahead and pray over our uh, study today. Lord Jesus, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, it's your word. It's inspired by you, God. Uh, it addresses a very real and relevant situation uh, in the culture of Corinth 2,000 years ago. And uh, Lord, you know it addresses a very real um, need and situations, situations in Prineville today. It's very real. It's very um, near to our hearts and to our families. And so we pray that you would give us the grace to uh, hear Give me the grace and the power of your spirit to speak, Lord. I pray you would protect our hearts from just perverse thoughts and perversion. And uh, Lord, you know I've just, uh, I've just been prayerful over how to teach this subject matter. And so, Lord, I just right now, I just lay it all down and say, Lord, you bring it. Bring just exactly what you want said to our husbands today, to our wives, uh, to the younger ones in here that are going to be married someday and need to have their hearts um, protected and taught in the area of sexuality. And so um, here we are, God. We pray that you would use 1 Corinthians 7 to purify our church and to strengthen our marriages. And, uh, and in all that, it would glorify the name of Jesus. So do it, God, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> well, the title of today's teaching is Elements of Sexual Satisfaction and the strategy of Satan. Did you hear about the woman who'd been married to four men? Her first husband was a millionaire. Her second husband was a film producer. The third man in her life was a butler, and her fourth husband was a funeral director. A millionaire, a filmmaker, a butler, and a funeral director. Of course, the woman explained her choice in men as follows. It was one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. Let's have the worship team come on up and we're done here. Believe it or not, that's a good lead-in for a section in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Trish, it's, it is, okay? Why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul deals with marriage, divorce, and singleness. He addresses marriage and sex within marriage in verses 1 through 9. He addresses divorce in verses 10 through 24, and singleness in verses 25 through 40. So there's something for all of us in the following text that we'll be in for the next couple weeks uh, in a small series titled, Till Death. As we look at the context of chapter 7, we want to just go back a little bit to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. For the last couple chapters, Paul has been addressing uh, the church in Corinth on an area they'd been compromising in, and that is sexual purity. Sexual purity. They're, they had been prideful as a church that they had actually been welcoming a man into their congregation who'd been sexually active with his father's wife. And they were proud about that. Look how universal we are. Look how all-encompassing we are. Aren't we just so gracious? And Paul says, I ought to just slap you. He says, you haven't stood up for the holiness of God yet? I've already judged this matter. And, and we did a whole teaching on that a few weeks ago. You can get online and listen to that. But, but the subject matter has been sexual immorality within the church. 
As Corinth was a church that was very carnal, very fleshly, and had much to be corrected in, we've certainly felt the sting of some of the blows of the rod being corrected and chastised as a, chastised as a 21st century church, and we need it. We need to be corrected. We need to be set in line that we might rightly represent Jesus in this dark land, this dark culture. But in 1 Corinthians 6.18, this is last week's subject matter, we read, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And so in all of this, the Corinthians are urged to get out of there. Every Christian should wear track shoes so that they're just constantly ready to run from sin. Flee speaks of a hard, strong to pin down action. Much like Joseph, when he ran from Potiphar's wife after being seduced by a beautiful, wealthy woman, time after time after time to lie with her, uh, he ran. He said, how can I do this great sin against God? i got to get out of here. And he ran so strongly that his garment ripped off in her hand as he fled the house. It's a great lesson for us. But we also see in 1 Corinthians that every other sin has a different effect on our heart, on our body, on our mind, on our future. You know, jaywalking is much different than visiting a prostitute. It's going to do something different to your heart, to your mind, to your life, to your family. And so Paul really warns against uh, sexual immorality, that uh, visiting prostitutes as a Christian, it should not be done. And he's told one reason is that your body, if you are a Christian, is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And that word temple is the same word that's used to describe the holy of holies inside the temple in the Old Testament. It's the epicenter where he, our God, in his might and holiness makes his dwelling place. And in the new covenant, in the New Testament, he makes that dwelling place in the hearts of the Christian. And so as Charles Spurgeon says, our bodily unchastity is a sacrilegious desecration of our manhood. It's a violation of the sacred shrine wherein the spirit takes up its dwelling place. Are you involved in sexual immorality? It's the word pornea in the Greek. You can only imagine where we get our English word pornography or porn. It means sexual immorality. It means anything that is outside one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, the Bible just throws out a junk drawer term that says whatever your sick little mind could think up, put it in that drawer and it's called sexual immorality. And it is not okay for a Christian. You are desecrating the, the presence, the, the dwelling place of the presence of God Almighty. He goes on to say, as we studied last week, for you were bought at a price, chapter 6, verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And man, this is a beautiful passage. It's something that I've just been rejoicing in all week, that I've been purchased with a price. That's added there to tell us that it was, that we were valuable to the Lord and he was willing to spread some serious currency, the currency of his blood, his precious blood. Now, the, the motivation for us in holy living and to keep ourselves pure for, for the Lord sexually, uh, there's a little motivation there uh, when we are told, hey, you were made in the image of God. Okay, 
okay, so I want to stay pure for the Lord. And, and if we say, hey, God's provided for you, hasn't he? He's put clothes on your back and food in your tummy, and he's provided a place for you to survive. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. But even more so, in this chapter, when we hear that we've been bought at a price by God himself, and the currency that he used is his precious blood. The life is in the blood. He, was, he had sinless blood and he shed it for you. It was poured out so that you might be purchased and obtain freedom from the slavery of sin and death. That brings tremendous motivation for holiness and for purity and for sanctity with our bodies. Now, we get into verse 1 today saying, Now concerning the things that you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So this, the, the issue of purity and chastity, it continues on. Uh, apparently, there was more, more things written to Paul, uh, probably about the issues of sexual immorality within the church. Uh, duty bound him to address these things, and he says it's good for a man not to to touch the woman. Now, something you need to know that was going on in Corinth was you've got some Jews that live in Corinth and you've got some Gentiles that live in Corinth. The Jews, man, they're coming from a background that if you weren't married by the time you were 20, you were in sin. All right? There was sin in your life. You should be married. That's about, that's God's plan for your life. Uh, it's not good that man be alone, be fruitful and multiply. 20 years old, more like 18, you better be hitched. All right? So that's where the Jews are coming from that are even living in the Greek uh, isthmus of Corinth. And then on this side, you've got the, the, the Gentiles who come from a life of paganism, sexual immorality of every kind. Some of them had been temple prostitutes in the past. And they, they perhaps went the degree of, no, if you want to be a, a true Christian, then you need to be chaste. You need to be single. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. So there was kind of this like, no, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to be married. No, if you want to be a good Christian, then you need to be single and you need to be chaste. And so Paul says here, these things that you've written me, some issues that are going on, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now there's some good practical heart working out stuff just in the first read of it, right? Uh, but he's not really talking about it's good for a man not to hug his sister or to greet a woman in the church with a handshake or a hug or in some cultures, as I've been to Brazil and I've been to Hungary, a holy kiss perhaps. But the context here and the, and the idea is sexual immorality. It's good for a man not to be involved in sexual immorality with a woman. And the language speaks of starting a fire, holding somebody, seizing somebody, grasping somebody, an act of intimacy and sexual touch. It's good for a man not to do that with a woman. And the Proverbs speak to that about sexual immorality, that if you were to, uh, to go out and to be embraced by the evil woman or from the flattering tongue of the seductress, and women, please feel free to apply that to your life, to a man that has a flattering tongue or the evil man. The Proverbs tell us, don't lust after their beauty in your heart. Don't let them allure you with their eyelids. Man, some of those guys, they got some, they got some eyelashes on them. And it says this, for by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. An adulteress will prey upon his precious life. 
Can a man take fire to his bosom and to his clothes and not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals with his feet and not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And so it's good for a man not to play with fire. Is one way that verse 1 is read here. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. If you're not married, it's, it's not good to be alone in a vehicle at night overlooking Prineville and snuggling and, and, you know, arm around and, you know, it goes places. It's good to not touch a woman who is not your wife in those ways. The NIV says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. One version takes it to mean it is good to actually be single. And not married. Touch here, some see to be a euphemism for marriage. So it's, it's a good thing to not be married. Why is that? Well, because some people and the call that God has upon their lives to be married would be a distraction from the call upon their lives. Now, it doesn't mean that he's saying, therefore, it's bad to be married. It's not what he's saying. You're reading, you'd be reading past what was being said. For good, it's people who have that call on their lives to be celibate. That's a good thing. And later on in verse 30, I think it is, he goes into that more. We'll see it in the weeks to come. But uh, it's good to be married or it's good to not be married. I think it's verse 12 that says uh, it's really the call that would be upon your life or the gift upon your life. The Bible, we know, you got to test all scripture with scripture. So some of you, your version might say it's good for a person to be single. Oh my gosh, I'm married. Oh man, this is the Corinthians, right? They're like, oh, I'm married. I got to not be married. I got to like leave my wife and I got to like go and be a monk somewhere. That's the call of God upon my life. It's good to be single. Hey, we test scripture with scripture, right? Scripture is the best commentary on scripture. We want to look at the whole picture. We know that the Bible is pro-marriage. It was God who created uh, marriage in his sovereignty when he created man. He says, it's not good that you be alone. And after he created Eve, he said, go be fruitful and multiply. So we look at scripture with scripture. And in this case, the Corinthians were saying, man, it's only good to be single. Or the Jews would say, no, it's only good to be married. And there's good balance brought by Paul in this section. So it's good for a man not to touch a woman couple different views. It's good to not be sexually immoral and to touch sexually outside of marriage. And the other view would be, it's good to be single if that's what God has called you to do. Now let's look at verse two. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. I like the uh, Phillips paraphrase written in 1940 England for the young people of England that they might understand the scriptures. J.B. Phillips says, It is a good principle for a man to have no physical contact with a woman. Nevertheless, because casual liaisons are so prevalent, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. So sexual intimacy and to escape temptation is not the only reason to get married, okay? It's a good reason, it's a big reason, but not the only reason. Paul writes about marriage all over the New Testament, and he has lofty views of it, and shows us the beauty that encompasses marriage. But one good part of marriage is that it's a necessary action to avoid being immoral sexually, 
a writer named Bucky, said, In this Corinthian context, while it's okay to remain single, many of you can't remain single because of the lifestyle you've come from and the climate that you find yourself now. So just be practical about things and recognize that you ought to take a wife or a husband. Let me tell you this, Corinth wasn't much different than 2013 America. Corinth, with their temple to Aphrodite's on the hill, where they were, there were temple prostitutes and sexual immorality was just completely rampant. Uh, we have the same amount around here, if not more so, with the media and the things that we have in front of us every single day. And so for the purpose of the, some of our backgrounds and the culture and climate that we find ourselves, it's a good practical thing to just get married. To just get married so that you can fight against sexual immorality. In the scriptures, marriage is for procreation, yes. And it's for pleasure, yes. Not the least of which is sexual fulfillment. Marriage is for partnership. Marriage is a picture of Jesus Christ as the groom and us, the church, as his bride. Marriage has the purpose of maintaining purity in the world that is putrefying. Yet, celibacy has peculiar dangers if you're not called to us. And in our culture and in this church, there's not a ton of people that are like, you've got to be celibate, dang it. But it is around us, and it is in our culture. John Calvin wrote of the ministers in the Catholic Church who were forbidden to marry because marriage didn't seem to fit the way of life in keeping with the holiness of the order. And he writes, God punished the presumption of those who despised marriage and made rash vows of everlasting continuancy or celibacy or singleness or sexual purity in singleness. He punished them first by the secret fires of lust and then with horrible and filthy practices. This is Calvin writing in his day and age, in his generation. He says, but because the ministers of the church were debarred from lawful marriage... The result of this arbitrariness has been that the church has been deprived of many good and faithful ministers. For many honest and wise men would not put themselves in a trap. At last, after a long period of time, lusts which until then had been repressed gave off their stench. It was not enough that those in, in whose case it was a capital offense to have a wife maintained mistresses, otherwise prostitutes with impunity, but no home was safe because of the lustfulness of the priest, Calvin writes. Even that was put in the shape for unnatural and outrageous things came into the open, things which it's better to bury in everlasting oblivion than ever to mention even by way of example. And so we have the historical account of the Catholic Church forbidding its priests and its ministers to marry, and we've seen it on the news how many times that these priests go and they fornicate because they don't have a pure and holy biblical outlet for their sexual desires. And so they're pushed into a corner uh, to, to sin in that way. So, context is everything. The Corinthian people were expressing their sexual urges anywhere, in any way they wanted to, with anyone they wanted. And Paul says, hey, a man should take a wife. And a wife should take a husband. A simple solution that we could be practical about here today. In verse 3, now it comes home, y'all. Okay. 
Let's stretch before we get into it. Okay. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. And likewise also the wife to the husband. We have here in verse 3 more than an observation that we've had in the previous verses. We have now an obligation that a husband is to be affectionate to his wife. That a wife is to be affectionate to her husband. Showing feeling, showing affection. In the words of the donkey on Shrek, you've got to, got to have a little tenderness. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, dwell with your wife with understanding. Be understanding to her. Give honor to her as the weaker vessel so that your prayers might not be hindered. Be affectionate. Be understanding. Have conversation. Learn what makes her happy. Learn what makes her mad. Learn what makes her nervous. Learn what provokes her to worship God. Look what, learn what moves her into sin. Be understanding about what causes her to lie awake and worry at night. Understand what moves her sexually and what doesn't and what's a turnoff to her. Dwell with your wife with understanding. Honor her. Be affectionate to her. If you ain't going to do that, you got no prayer life is what Peter says. This is an obligation to the husbands to be affectionate. Simply put by Paul in Ephesians 5.22 in not so simple 120 words is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on for a few verses to show what that looks like. That's a Bible study for your own time because we've tackled it many times here at the church a couple weeks ago at family camp. Husbands, love your wives. Be affectionate. Give her flowers for her birthday or for Mother's Day or for no reason at all, dare I say. Know your wife, that perhaps your wife doesn't like flowers because then they die and you just wasted a bunch of money on flowers and now what? <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> she's not in here? This is going to be a good tea. Praise God she's not in here today. Oh! Oh, no. Let's just have the worship team come on up. We're going to end here today. Oh, gosh. Okay. Call her from work just to say hi, to tell her you love her. Send an affectionate text with emoticons, okay? Show her affection and likewise the wife to the husband. Now the word affection is literally conjugal rights. It's more than talking and it's more than holding hands and it's more than a back rub and it's more than a text with emoticons. It's sexual affection that each needs to render to the other. Paul is saying there is no place for celibacy within marriage. And we sometimes think there is. There is no place for celibacy within marriage. You did not get married to live the life of a single, and you can't live as married while you're single. 
And we live in a culture where people will say we're married in our hearts, so we're just going to shack up and live together. There's no commitment before the Lord. There's no accountability by man. There's no union before God and, and, and witness. And so whenever we're all of a sudden not married in our hearts, it's no big deal to move out. And so we get in this sick cycle of hook up, shack up, break up. Hook up, shack up, break up. It's here in our church. It's in my family. It's in your family. And it's sin. And people are living as married when they are not married. And if you did that before you were married, cry out to God for forgiveness. Because it could be some of the very things that are causing issues in your marriage today. Singles being married without actually being married and sealing a covenant before the Lord. And married people living as if they're single and that they're not involved physically. Show them the affection due to them sexually, conjugally. It is their due. Listen, husbands, listen, wives. You owe it to them as a moral right, the MW Collegiate Dictionary says. It's their moral right. It's acceptable procedure that you would satisfy this obligation and this duty to your spouse it is expected that you would be sexually affectionate to your spouse. And it's biblical. We've got a verse for it today. But notice, likewise, likewise, the husband to the wife and likewise, the wife to the husband. It goes both ways. And we have this beautiful Proverbs in Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Speaking of sexual affection and marriage, Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed in a broad streams of water just out there in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. That is a Christian marriage. That's a Christian marriage, that your fountain would be blessed, that you could rejoice until the day you die with the wife of your youth. My grandma is kind of on her deathbed. I went and visited her perhaps for the last time this weekend. And her and my grandpa have been married for 65 years. It's incredible to be there and to watch him serving her. As in, He's 92 and she's 85. And they knew each other for two weeks before they got married. There's some things I could say there, but I'm not going to. But till the day you die, that you'd be able to say, my one wife, my one husband, I'm rejoicing with them from our, from our youth. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Let her always be enraptured with your love. Do you see there's affection going both ways? She's enraptured with your love because you're loving her like Christ loved the church. And there's sexual satisfaction at all times within the marriage. Verse four says, you guys sweating? It is a little warm in here. <laughs> the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So 
There's authority that goes both ways in a marriage. This means rightful, unimpeded power to act and to possess and to control somebody or something. Now, we read today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are not our own. We've been bought with the price. Amen? So first of all, we're not our own anyways. We're Jesus's. We've been bought. We've been paid for, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm his. Right? Guess what? You're doubly not your own. This is a slap in the face of your selfish flesh. And parenting is a triple slap. And then if you have a lot of kids, Martinez's face is continually red because this guy is so not his own. Just kidding. Christ owns you. Husbands, your wife owns you. Wives, your husband owns you. And my little Laney girl, that girl owns me. I say it all the time. And this is when she goes like this, because then I always say, she's got me wrapped around her finger and she knows it's coming. But we don't have authority over our own body. That's gone. That was gone the day we got saved. And the day you got married, you doubly don't have authority over your own body. Now, you have a level of authority, right? But so does your husband over you. Husbands, you have a level of authority, and Christ owns you, but also your wife has authority over you. There's an owning there. This is not taught in many pre-marriage classes, and I think I need to add it to my own curriculum that I go through with uh, those who are engaged. Now, some selfish, self-crazed, sex-crazed husbands somewhere have misused this verse as some sort of an endorsement from the scriptures for a kinky or perverted demand. Come on, baby, you're mine. Misuse of the scripture. We're going to do this. We're going to look at pornography together. And that's okay because, you know, we're married and the marriage bed is undefiled and so forth. We can bring that in. No, you cannot. Because one verse, such as the marriage bed being undefiled, doesn't negate the rest of the scripture speaking about purity and honoring the Lord within your marriage and outside your marriage. So don't use this verse, husbands, and I'm guessing it's mostly husbands that would do this, to bring in some kind of impure uh, evil into your marriage bed. Okay? Um, And I'm sure it's happened where a wife was abused and misused for her husband's selfish gratification. And husbands, that's not what this verse is saying. Now, again, we have the word likewise. This goes both ways. Each one owes duties to another. And Paul says, I want you to pay what you owe. Now, this is beautiful because neither partner owes something that isn't owed back to them. The wives are given the command and the obligation. The husbands are given the command and the obligation. And so people are wrong when they call Paul a misogynist because he has looked out for the women all throughout the scriptures and wherever the gospel goes, the women find incredibly freedom. This is ground level here. Both people, husband and wife, have duties that need to be fulfilled. And the tense of it all is, is in the present continual tense. Guess what that means about Sunday? Don't fill in the blank, but presently, tomorrow, the next day, till death do you part. There is the present and continual tense of showing the affection that's due to your spouse. 
Sex is something that is sacred. It is something that is obligatory. It's a responsibility and it's a duty on the part of a partner to give sexual satisfaction to the other. It is nonsense that you can have celibacy in your marriage if you are a Christian. The marriage vow did something that was life-changing where we give up our rights for ourselves. And the scriptures tell us that one plus one equals one. The two shall become one flesh. Our two-ness is now one-ness. In our currently increasing culture, verse four gives no basis to violate the marriage partner's walk with Christ in their purity. And I think we've established that. Alistair Begg says, sadly, so much Christian counseling has so absorbed so much of the trash of the secular world that it is difficult to determine if you are at a Christian or non-Christian counselor when it comes to many issues of marriage and sanctity. And so we want everything about our marriages to be held up by the scriptures. We want to be led and we want the authority of the word to wash over our lives. And so verse five tells us that we're not to deprive one another. Are you willing today to come under the authority of the word of God as the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write out good teaching to Christians when he says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control? Are you willing to come under the obedience of scripture, wives? Husbands, come under the obedience of scripture where you wouldn't deprive your wife. It's the same word that means defraud, to take something away and withhold sexual relations. That's the context here. Sex in marriage is not an option. It's not an extra. It should never be used as a manipulative tool, a reward, or negated and neglected as a punishment. I want to give you in this just three quick elements of sexual satisfaction in marriage. And the first thing is, and we see it here in verse five, that sexual intercourse should be frequent. Mark Driscoll says, Christian lovemaking should be frequent. How often? Often. How frequent? Frequent. There's no like day, week, or month, or whatever in here, but it's something we're gonna see in a little bit. It needs to be discussed between each husband and each wife. Paul mentions the frequency of sexual relations within marriage here. That there's to be a regular occurrence of sexual intercourse. And that is one element that makes up the satisfaction in our sexual relationships. I want to read a little bit of New York Times to you. I read it prayerfully. I've prayed over it. There's a little bit of worldview in there. Let's see if you can pick it out. But for the most part, it gives some good insight to some of the sexless marriages that are going on in our culture, but also in the church today. The New York Times says, uh, I suspect, this woman is being interviewed, I suspect that we just hear more about it these days. Back in the days before reliable birth control, having a sexless marriage was one way of limiting family size. Those were also the days when women were not supposed to enjoy sex and often used it as a bargaining tool in their marriages because uh, society allowed them to do so. Plus, unhappy couples who are less likely to have sex were more likely to stay together simply because of social expectations or because they had children they were raising. And answering the question, why are there so many sexless marriages? The answer is one 
Uh, that one is both. Some of the people in our sample never had much sex from the beginning, while others identified a particular time or event, such as childbirth or an affair, after which sex slowed or it stopped. Some people became accustomed to their spouse, bored with their spouse, and sex slowed. For others, it's the demand of raising a family or establishing a career and mid-adulthood. And there are people who have very so sex, sex drives. It's those little things that just help. They may have some sex with their partners to begin with, but it becomes unimportant to them and usually not so unimportant to their spouses. These folks may also be dealing with guilt, issues with the human body, or feel that sex is dirty or only for procreation. A small number of couples showed a mixed pattern where they would have periods of feast or of famine. So we even get a little bit of, of a worldly perspective, and we, of course, you know, there's a lot in there that we don't want to apply to our lives, like, well, then just move on to somebody you're happy with, which is a little bit of what's in there. But what you do see are a lot of excuses that come into our homes as to why it would be okay to be celibate within our marriages. Now I'm going to read a little article from the Christian Post, where according to the columnist Shiri Mitchell, writing to Christian women about Christian couples in a sexless marriage. She says, I have heard every excuse imaginable, whether it's not having enough time, being worn down by housework, not to mention that he, meaning the husband, doesn't help with the housework or the children, needing to unwind from a long workday herself, being unhappy with her body, being repulsed by his body, working through resentment against him for something he did this morning, last week, or 10 years ago, I've truly heard some doozies, she says, but an excuse is an excuse is an excuse, no matter how cleverly or eloquently phrased it is. And apart from six weeks postpartum recovery, other physical conditions that prevent a couple from being able to have sex and or damage resulting from abuse, truthfully, there just isn't any excuse that holds up for a wife not giving it up regularly. Here's the deal. Sexually active men need sex often, not once a month, not once a year, not only on holidays, but often. Are we getting it? If one of you says, well, I don't feel like it. Newsflash, it doesn't matter. Okay, it doesn't matter. Because biblically, sex isn't about feeling like it. Okay, it's not in the scriptures. Be fruitful and multiply. You don't see that in this text. It's not about feelings. I love what Alistair Begg says. He says, just do it. I know that's not romantic, but it's what the Bible says. Okay? We're going we're to see why at the end of this verse. Why should you just do it? But before we do, a lighter note. The second level and element of sexual intimacy is physical attraction. Physical attraction, it's a very sensitive, very complex area. There's a lot of things about ourselves that we can't change as try as we might. And we've got all that media out there that's showing us what the world thinks we should look like. And we want to use discernment about that and not buy into worldviews and world philosophies. It's true that some people can err on the side of, um, you know, trying so hard to look like the world uh, that they're, you know, that they're just 
they're worldly themselves. And then on the other end of things, you got people that don't take baths, you know, and it's just hard to be intimate with that individual, right? Not here. I mean, just saying. But many pastors believe this text implies that husbands and wives have a spiritual duty to be attractive to each other. Your wife owns your body, husbands. Wives, your, your husband owns your body and has authority over it. So when they share things of what they feel is attractive, listen. Listen and grow in that. It isn't just your body. I have jurisdiction over the appearance of my wife. My wife has some jurisdiction over the appearance of me. The faux hawk is gone. Had it for years. And the wife's like, I love you. Not loving the faux hawk, all right? So I'm doing something hard and different. I'm like combing over, getting ready to be an old man. (laughs) But it's hot, so... And my wife has jurisdiction over me, and I have a jurisdiction over the appearance of her. So go. Wives, tell your husbands what you find attractive. And be real with them. And say, you know what? Your beard, it's like it's like rubbing my face against a camel. Why do I never want to kiss you? I don't want to kiss a camel. So shave your beard off. Why do I not have a beard? A few reasons. But the real reason is my wife doesn't like a beard. She doesn't want to kiss even one day of stubble. And it gets pretty thick after a few hours, so. Get your wives a gift certificate for for a store and take her out and let her go out with the girls and go shopping and get some new clothes, guys. Wives, take that and run with it. That's a gift. Gals, get your husband some clothes. It's okay, wives, to say, you know what? You know, you're unhealthy. And you know what? I'll finally love you when you can see your toes. No, don't say that. But say, let's work out together. Okay, because I'm attracted to when, you know, you don't have to have a six-pack of abs, but, you know, let's care about our body because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so physical appearance, it's, it's, uh, it's important. The text seems to hint towards that. In marriage, though, it's much more than sex. If your partner doesn't satisfy you, you don't have the right to go seek satisfaction elsewhere. And so it's okay to be speaking these things into each other's life. Thirdly, element of sexual satisfaction is the overall quality of the relationship. Sexual satisfaction in the marriage depends on, in this third place, the overall quality of the relationship. If there is anger or bitterness or resentment or hurt, or feeling that way, you know, or we don't usually touch each other, let alone embrace. This text is an exhortation for you as a wife and you as a husband to humble yourselves and repent and seek forgiveness and renewal from the Holy Spirit in your marriage. You need to reconcile. You need to reconcile. The only reason that there should be any period of of 
break or pause from sexual intimacy, it says here, is accept with consent for a time. As Alfred says, unless perchance you might want to go pray and fast. Later on, Paul's going to say, I just say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Unless perchance. For what purpose? For the purpose of fasting and of prayer. This is the second time that prayer is mentioned in regards to, uh, to marriage. There's a lot of power much in prayer, much to fast and pray for. And perhaps even today you would be moved by the Lord to take some time with your spouse and fast and pray for your marriage and for this subject in your marriage of sexual intimacy with one another. And set a time there and come back and just allow the Lord to be healing. There's special power in the prayers of a married couple. And that's one reason if your marriage isn't healthy, your prayers are hindered. If you're neglecting your wife, Peter tells us. There may be times in mutual consent that you would get on your knees beside the bed rather than in the bed. And pray and seek the Lord. So with this idea of a pause within the, the intimacy of our marriage, some have paused because they've used sex and they've morphed sex into a reward for a husband's behavior. Very dangerous. It's bribing him for something that you want. It's manipulation. It's not affirmation. It's a cruel use of what should be an expression of a commitment to love. Some are depriving the spouse as a form of punishment. Some are depriving them due to neglect, not showing affection. For some, it's been days, weeks, months, years that go by without sexual intimacy. According to experts, a sexless relationship is one in which the frequency of sex has dwindled to 10 times a year or less. Statistics suggest that more than 15 to 20% of couples in America come under this category. That's one-fourth of American couples and includes religious people, according to the Christian Post. It's estimated that about 15% of marriage couple, married couples have not had sex with their spouse in the last six months or to one year, according to Denise Donnelly, Associate Professor of Sociology at Georgia State University. The U.S. National Health and Social Life Survey of 1994 found that 2% of married respondents reported no sexual intimacy for the last year. Newsweek magazine estimates that 15 to 20% of couples are in a sexless relationship. Studies show that 10% or less, and you just kind of see how the percentages are pretty close, 10% of less of married population below the age of 50 have not had sex in the past year. In addition, only 20% or less report having sex a few times per year to monthly when they're under the age of 40. And so here we have an example of being celibate for the sake of fasting and prayer. Now let me tell you this as a pastor, it is quite an undertaking to get an individual or a church to fast from food for the purpose of praying for a week. It's nearly impossible, and we fast once a year for seven days, and it's like, you know, it's like, what would you say, pulling strings? How do you say that? I don't know, it's pulling teeth. Pulling teeth, strings too, that's horrible. <laughs> it's nearly impossible to get people to fast for that long, and yet married couples are unwittingly fasting from sexual intimacy 
for weeks, months, and the statistics would say even years with no intention of spiritual focus or prayer. And so I would exhort when a period of celibacy seems to be beginning, ask yourself, how long do I, be, how long do I plan on praying and fasting here? Or is that even your intention? And has the other spouse agreed to this? Why are you unknowingly celibate right now? Sex within marriage is not bad. It's not gross. It's not dirty. It's something that was created as a sovereign act of God for his own glory. It fosters intimacy in other areas. Likewise, affection in other areas fosters intimacy sexually. There was a couple who was moving from a cramped condo into a spacious new home. They had a little girl who needed more room, and as they toured the prospective house, the daughter saw the third bedroom. She got excited. She whispered, Mom, this house is perfect. There's enough bedrooms here so that you and Daddy don't have to share anymore. (laughs) Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Husband and wife, you need to work it out among yourselves. You need to have frank, honest, loving, selfless conversations with one another. And if you're going to fast, it needs to be talked out. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. After the time is up, come back together so Satan doesn't tempt you. Do you guys know that Satan uses your sexual desire? And if this one makes you want to fight for your spouse, Satan uses your spouse's sexual desire. He doesn't create sexual desire. He uses it and abuses it. He sees that we can be prone to a lack of self-control. Sins of lust, pornography, harlotry, adultery are very real. A spouse can help protect against these things by keeping intimacy alive in their marriage. When sexual desire arises, John Piper said, Satan shifts his missile carriers into high gear. The rise of sexual desire does not mean victory for Satan, but does mean vulnerability to Satan. So there's a very simple truth at work here, and you each need to be prayerful over this. The more strongly we feel sexual desire the more susceptible we are to being deceived that it's not wrong to satisfy it through fornication or adultery or masturbation, which is, by the way, biblically, it's lustful, selfish, self-serving, builds habits, defrauds your spouse, and causes your conscience to not be clean. So, The same truth holds in all areas of our lives. The stronger we desire for some satisfaction, the more vulnerable we are for the devil to use that desire and twist it so that we would abuse it and not fulfill it in the right, biblical, pure, and holy way. Sexual intimacy within marriage is a blockade against adultery. It's a blockade against fornication. Infidelity is an added danger when we get into a place of celibacy. When the spouse is forced to fend for themselves, it poses a temptation in their path. And many times a spouse that that is withholding has no idea 
that their actions of not being intimate is in fact a key factor in pushing their spouse into an adulterous relationship. As a husband goes to bed and he lays over on this side of the bed, maybe with his back turned, the wife goes to bed over here, maybe with her back turned, there's a lot of space in between. Guess what? The devil is sleeping in that space. And he wants to use that space to, to misuse a proper use. He wants to tempt. He wants to get in. He wants to destroy. It is his job. He loves fornication and he loves adultery because it defrauds people. It ruins home. It tears down the glory of God. It's clear from this text that good sexual relationships in marriage are indeed intended as a dam against this flood of adultery. Husbands and wives have a duty to offer sexual relations to each other in such a way that the temptation of adultery or fornication is significantly weakened. This is very serious. Satan, the devil, okay, the devil wants to use sexual desire and take you to hell with it. And he wants to do that to your spouse, your spouse. Fight for your spouse. I heard from somebody once that a person on an airplane turned down an in-flight meal and when asked why, he said that he was fasting and praying to Satan. When asked what he was fasting and praying for, he said, the breakdown of ministers' marriages. When I was 15, I went to Hungary. And I remember the, the Hungarian pastor over there, actually he's American, his name's Greg Opin, now in California. But he said that when he first moved there, the witches in Budapest uh, began to pray and began seances and they would show up at the pastors and missionaries' homes in front of their house naked, trying to get them to fornicate with them so that they could tear down the work of Christ in Budapest. That's how the work, that's how the enemy works. Satan is totally committed to adultery. He is totally committed to fornication and the personal problems that lead to it and from it. And so wives, this is a word for you that your husband lives in a sex-obsessed world every day. Every day. Just being in the world and trying to be a Christian, he has just sex always in front of him and in his ears and in his mind and it's all around him. And I got to tell you, your husband has not been gifted with celibacy. If he had been, he wouldn't be married to you and he'd be serving the Lord singly. It's not the only reason he got married, but it is a big reason that he got married. He has need for a holy, healthy, sexual outlet. And he's been committed to forego relations with all other women to cultivate the relationship with you. And as he says that to you, as he cries out to you, man, fight for him. Don't ignore the obvious wives. Loving, passionate, frequent sex with a man's wife is what takes sexual pressure off of the husband. And the temptations from the outside, from the world, aren't as strong as he, if he's got all of the feminine affection he can handle at home. There's nothing as devastating as a spouse who constantly wants to be intimate and the other spouse rejecting them. It's disgraceful and it's humiliating. And the scriptures speak of it. In Song of Solomon, you have the wife that's at home ready to go to bed and the husband comes and he's knocking on the door saying, hey, 
And she's like, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, it's been a long day, blah, blah, blah. And he, and he just goes away crushed. Goes away out into the temptations of the world. And the Song of Solomon says that, that the Shulamite, she's, or Shunamite, she kind of stirs and she's like, oh, oh yeah, okay. And goes to the door and it's too late. It's too late. Wives, learn from that. Husbands, it's a word for you as well. Sex is worship to God. In that intimate setting, all of the two become one flesh in sexual intimacy passages. 1 Corinthians 6, Genesis chapter 2, Matthew chapter 19, Ephesians chapter 5. They are shown in the consummation of marriage that there is intimacy between, between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. In Romans chapter 1, the misdirected worship will always end up in fornications of all kind of sick and twisted ways. But when we keep our worship on the Lord, then there's purity within our marriage beds. Marriage or sex is for procreation. It's for pleasure. It's fun. It's comforting. I recommend Mars Hill's present, Peasant Princess series on MarsHillChurch.com. It's a great study for you and your spouse to go through. Verse 6 says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. David Gusick says, taking a break from intimacy to fast and pray is a concession. It's not a commandment. Others read it as the living Bible. I'm not saying you must marry somebody, but certainly feel free to marry if you wish. If you're married, stay married and do not deprive your spouse. Verse 7, we can have the worship team come on up now. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But if they cannot exercise self-control, or I'm sorry, verse 8, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with a passion. It's good to be celibate. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And it's also good to be married. If you can't exercise self-control with your fiance or with your girlfriend, it is better to marry than to burn with fornication passion. This secret flame of lust with, which lays waste the whole inner man. Marriage is a dam against the flood of fornication and adultery. Remember, chapter six, verse nine, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived with, with empty words. Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians tells us, don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. I'm teaching a pastor's conference, or a, a marriage conference in Klamath Falls in three weeks. And I was taken aside by a family member down in Klamath Falls and was told, don't make a horse's A out of yourself in telling people they can't live together before marriage. And I just said, man, the word of God is my authority. And I've got to speak the truth in love. It's better to obey God than man. And that was by a person that's a Christian. That's our culture. Welcome. You know, there's hardly a pre-marriage counseling session that I've had in Prineville where the couple comes in and they're not already living together, fornicating regularly, sharing a bed, and have children together. Hardly, a, maybe two out of ten. 
Okay? So, man, don't be deceived. Charles Spurgeon says, a man must not say, I have faith, and then fall into the sins of an unbeliever. For after all, our outer life is the test of our inner life. And if the outer life is not purified, rest assured the heart is not changed. That faith which does not bring forth the fruit of holiness is the faith of the devils. Let's stand up for purity. Let's charge for purity. Let's represent Jesus well in this land. You know what? There's conversations that need to be had today between husbands and wives. There's times of fasting and prayer that need to be have had between husbands and wives that they might repent to each other and have the Lord heal their marriages where they're broken in this area. Lord has much to say regarding marriage in chapter seven. So come back in the weeks to come to hear it. We're gonna have the ushers come forward and they're gonna pass out communion. And uh, during this last song, I would just ask that you would just hold the communion elements in your hand and just consider the currency by which you were bought with a price. If you're a Christian here today, you weren't bought with corruptible things like, the, like gold and silver or perishable things like the blood of bulls and goats. What were you purchased with? The body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6 says, amen. Hold these things, hold these elements. Thank God for his purchase price for you. Confess your sin before the Lord and all the ways that you've sinned and you've sinned against your spouse. You've defrauded your spouse through external means of lust and fornication and adultery and pornography. Confess that to the Lord. Repent of it. Ask God to prepare your heart with the conversation and the the reconciliation that needs to take place between you and your spouse today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.